coming from a mixed family, my experience, I cannot speak for anyone else but myself, I did not identify with white people or black people (laughs) at all. Welcome to Deeper Dish. Welcome back to Deeper Dish. No, the podcast is not over. We just took a long break as life took over for me. But we're back and we've got a few episodes plan to be published pretty soon but today we have my good friend Stacy with us she gives us some insight into growing up and being a parent within a multicultural multiracial family she provides some insights on her experiences growing up on the north side of Chicago growing up in Wrigleyville a few decades ago I think this is going to be an interesting episode for people to see some of the experiences that someone who is uncomfortable in what would normally be comfortable environment for most of us. Hope you enjoy. Stacy, thank you for coming on the show. What's your connection to Chicago? Well, I was born here. What neighborhood? It's now called Wrigleyville. I don't know what it was called back then. That's just east of here. Yes, just east of here. 3859 North Jansen. Okay. <laughs> the house is still there. Um, obviously, it's been rehabbed. This is bungalow. We were about a block west of a tavern, <laughs> just a block west of uh, Southport. Yeah. Born in Grant Hospital, which doesn't exist any longer. That was on Lincoln and Webster. It was just a blizzard. I was born on November 27th. Won't give the year, but it was a blizzard. <laughs> and yeah, we lived in that house, the bungalow. Up until I think I was in seventh grade or yeah. so. So yeah. the neighborhood has changed a lot. How has the neighborhood changed? Well, it was definitely a lot more affordable. I don't think it was quite as attractive for families to live in at that time. It mm-hmm. was more apartment buildings as well as single family homes. Yep. Like right now, I think there's a lot of single family homes, but mm-hmm. I mean, Blaine is a great school. We were a block away from Blaine. I didn't okay. go to Blaine, but. There's a lot more families that live there now. Yep. And demographics, very different. So we were a mixed family. My friends there were just brown friends in general. (laughs) (laughs) Not necessarily. I don't really even know what their races were. Like maybe Filipino. You know, I I don't even know. It wasn't something that we talked talked about about, really. (laughs) But they were like my neighborhood friends that I didn't go to school with. Where'd you go to school? Bell. Which is also still here. Yes, it's still here. It's a good school. Yes. So what made your family choose that neighborhood, Wrigleyville? They were in Lincoln Park. My mother taught at Lincoln Park High School. My father taught at Morton Academy, which was on Sacramento. I think they just liked the property. They bought properties. So you come from a family of educators. Yes. Both parents, Both parents were teachers, yeah. And you mentioned being a mixed family. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. My mom was of German and Polish heritage, and my father was African-American, and both have passed. My mom was born and raised in Chicago. Her parents both born and raised in Chicago, so they were like third-generation German-Polish. And interesting, they were all raised around, like in between 
Kimball Avenue and Pulaski in between like Irving and Addison. So like okay. that block radius, which kind of all had houses, aunts and uncles and for generations. And then one by one moved along. Like so my grandmother's twin sister is still alive. She moved out first to California and like they've kind of all dispersed. Yeah. Did that present any challenges for you and your family in Wrigleyville being a, a mixed family? Yeah. So, I mean, like my dad would tell me stories how he would not go with my mom to look at houses. They'd buy properties and my dad would just like hang back. My mom would go and look and walk with the realtor. My dad would have to go and just like walk around the perimeter at different times, not being with my mom. And then he'd just show up at signing, you know, when they close on the house. Guess what? (laughs) I'm here. (laughs) Right. I'd like to see how you're going to get out of this one, you know. But he had to do that several times. You know, my parents, they were sensitive to the fact that there were two cultures being represented in our family and I'd say that my mother was very sensitive to the fact that we needed to be exposed to Mm -hmm. different cultures I remember one time we are not a religious family Mm -hmm. at all and so and my mom was raised Catholic 12 years K through 12 Catholic school She was like, I'm not going to do that to you. I'm going to let you choose when you're old enough and you want to explore religion. If that's something you're interested in, then great. And so I really had no interest in it. But she was like, "Um, how about Kwanzaa? Where did that come from? What do you know about Kwanzaa? She's like, we'll we'll learn about it together. And I'm like, okay, that seems really kind of out of left field and... Yeah, not really authentic. Um, (laughs) (laughs) To to be fair to mom, she was trying. She was trying. Absolutely. She was trying. And my dad didn't really help in any way with that because he was like, basically, religion is a farce and, you know, (laughs) like they're just trying to get your money. So. He was just sitting on the recliner like, I'm going to let you handle that, mom. Right. Exactly. So my father was more... Like, do what you can for yourself. You know, don't expect anything from anybody else. And his mantra in life was, everybody's an asshole until they prove otherwise. There was a dynamic between your mother and your father that obviously you had, you have a sibling, you have, they had a family, had kids. There was a dynamic between them too sure. that that crossed over race and culture and all that stuff. Yeah. Like you, you obviously saw the like the differences there too, right? Yeah. So as a kid, like what did you observe? Both of my parents were very goal oriented, mm-hmm. results oriented, and I would say they were just both very driven. And so the memories I have, I remember waking up in the morning and they'd both be sitting at the kitchen table drinking coffee, and they'd be looking at the newspaper they talk about the world like things that were happening for probably 10 minutes and then they talk about the business section <laughs> and they would just be you know definitely more focused on actionable things that can be things measured that can be measured yeah. exactly i mean seriously every morning you know that is how they spent their mornings and that was their connection and then you know we kind of just would go off in our day and right. so my mom worked 
like I said, at the school, she was a biology teacher. My dad was an art teacher. And, you know, my mom was very scientific, measured. And yeah, my dad was much more creative. And then they worked a second job. They owned a business together, you know, from three to six every evening. They'd go and work there, like Division in Milwaukee. Oh, that was a way different neighborhood. Than yes. Much different than it is now. Correct. Well, if you don't mind me asking, what was the business? It started out as Biological Supply Company, okay. and then they grew it to um, Biological and Office Supply, and they would work with schools, government. What high school did you go to? Lane Tech. Right now we have these selective enrollment schools. Mm-hmm. So back in the day when we were younger... It was selective the, enrollment the, the school, at that time. The, the school was you wanted to go to was Lane Tech, Whitney Young, yeah. and I think maybe Hyde Park at the time, and because the, they had that seventh and eighth grade program that was similar to Whitney Young. Yeah, and then there was uh, the Lincoln Park IB program. Don't yes. forget about that. Yes, yes, <laughs> highly selective. So, what was that experience like? I'll tell you a story. I think you had to apply when you were in seventh grade, and in seventh grade, I had the chicken pox, and I was absent from school for two plus weeks and I had applied to Lane and I got rejected which was devastating Mm -hmm. and the reason that they gave me was my attendance was poor (laughs) so I had to go through this whole like process where I had to plead my case and you know it was a couple weeks of going back and forth with the school about you know you should let me in. I had a dream about the actual school and I know you know it. It looks very kind of gothic on the outside. Yeah. My dream was, you know, this monster face um, in the center of the school. Okay. And it was like, you're not coming in, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, the anxiety that I had in seventh wow. or eighth grade about going to Lane, because I was like, where will I go if I don't right. go to Lane? I, I'll have to go to Lutheran or... This is not okay. They'll find me out <laughs> that I'm an atheist. Oh, my God. <laughs> lane, lane or bus. Yeah. Thankfully, that whole thing worked out where I was able to go my freshman year. But the Lane experience was interesting. I mean, came from a school where I had, in my classroom, 32 kids. And I, I'm walking into a school of 4,000, literally. You know, you're just lost in the numbers. And thankfully, I had tennis. So I was able to kind of belong that way in terms of like having a team, having a purpose, Mm -hmm. kind of making friends through that. Yeah. You think it would have been different if you didn't have tennis? Oh, gosh. Yes. Well, so tennis was it was like kind of my fallback. And I'm an introvert. I'm a recovering introvert trying to like (laughs) make it through this world. So going to Lane, it was interesting. And I I'm sure it's not like this today, but there were just very clear groups of people. (laughs) There was, you know, people that loved the cure. They're metal enthusiasts. (laughs) There was the obviously techno kind of music or, you know, electronic. Uh, There was also house. I'm a huge house house head. head, Yes. And then there was like maybe hip hop. So, yeah, there's just all these different groups of kids. And every year at Lane, I went from group to group. I did not keep, like, one set of friends. I, you know, started out because I went to Medusa's when I was in seventh and eighth grade. It was a dance club for kids. It was a juice bar. And they'd play 
music. There were DJs. There was like a stage and risers and a couple different floors. And they would have it all ages until, I don't know, 10 or 11 o'clock. And then it would be after 11, over 17 years old could mm-hmm. go back in. And then they did sell drinks over 17 if you showed that you were 21 or whatever. That was on Sheffield, just north of Belmont. I used to go there like every weekend. <laughs> Loved dancing, right. loved the music, and a lot of the music at that time was just like dance music and mm-hmm. house and yep. the cure and maybe ministry, that <laughs> kind of stuff. Yeah. Front 242. So what a lot of people don't know is that clubs or bars like that is where some of these up-and-coming DJs who became famous for sure would get their start. Yeah. Right? And they weren't just playing records. They actually had to cut the film. I don't even know what it's called, the eight track. I don't know what it's called, but they just had to like manually cut that and mix in their songs. Yeah. The music and the DJs would move these teenagers. And then the other group, and it would catch on fire, was the gay community. Yep. So you had these LGBTQ bars and yep. you had the kids, right? And then once it caught on with the kids and the gay that's when it exploded. So whether it was house music, all these different genres of music. And I think that's one of the special things about Chicago is that you were going to this place and you were seeing some of the famous DJs. And, and, and at times you would go to some place and you see famous bands. Absolutely. That no one had ever heard of. And they, and they would start in places that like they couldn't perform other places. Cause I think at the time, like was it disco was making its way out and there was like, it was kind of like a rebellion against this slightly before your time. This maybe, is before my time. Right? And disco yeah. was kind of making its way out. And then this new stuff was coming in. It's interesting. So like there was house music being played at Medusa's, but it would be a different style than what you'd hear probably on the West side. Like, so depending on where, what part of town you're in would determine your influences, right? You like house music, but what influenced you? Like some people, it was disco. Some people would mix in more R and B sounds, right. and and also culturally, like there is a difference between a black person on the West Side and the South Side would have different potentially influences on their music, and the sound would be. It's kind of like I don't know if you know about footwork, like these guys that do footwork. Yeah. It's similar to that. Like you can go to Evanston and see somebody do some footwork that is very different than in the West Side and South. I don't do that stuff, yeah. but I'm just <laughs> in my research. It, it, that's interesting. But you did mention something that I want to talk about. You mentioned jumping around at Lane Tech into all these different groups. I can try to analyze this whole situation. I mean, you come from a very diverse household. Yes. Like, did that have something to do with it? Coming from a mixed family, my experience, I cannot speak for anyone else but myself. I did not identify with white people or black people (laughs) at all. I I didn't even identify with other mixed people because I didn't know many other mixed people. We had one family that we were friends with. It was actually a white father, black mother, and then they had two mixed girls. And so like my parents just tried for us to be the best of friends. (laughs) (laughs) Make it work. Yes, because they really liked each other, the parents. We're in the struggle together. Yeah, I mean, they really enjoyed each other, but, you know, we liked each other. It was just not, again, I seek authentic connections and we watched movies together and it was fine. You You weren't kicking it with them to Medusa's. (laughs) No, they had no interest in Medusa's and I had... No interest in whatever they were doing. So, yeah. So what I enjoyed was music and I enjoyed connecting with people on things that I liked. And so I sought 
out others that had that same kind of passion for dance and for, for music. And then that was kind of like what I was being drawn to even just within high school. Like, oh, I'd like to learn about what you guys are into. And so I knew about The Cure. I knew about ministry and these other groups. And so I just start talking to people that were all dressed in black and had like white makeup on. And I was like, you're cool. I typically would like find two or three people that I connected with strongly Mm -hmm. and then like just hang out with them. And that was like my group of friends. And then, you know, the summer would go by and maybe we didn't hang out as much. And then I'd go on, okay, it's sophomore year. I got new classes and oh, hey, um, I really like De La Soul. So who's listening to De La Soul? And then I ended up probably my junior and senior year having a close group of friends I'm still friends with to this day. What we would do is then go to raves. I don't know how we've become like lifelong friends after, you know, doing all this rave stuff. (laughs) That's a very good question. Yeah. How did you get involved with tennis? So my dad taught me how to play. He taught himself how to play. He just loved the sport. He was a competitive swimmer but needed something that he'd be able to do kind of more socially and find a tennis court a lot easier. Your dad dad was doing some different stuff for a black male. Absolutely. Swimming, tennis. Yep. I think in general, a lot of us need more of that. We need more white people doing X things, black people doing Y things. Right, breaking the Um, mold. I read this article about a lot of black folks, one, we just, a lot of us don't know how to swim. Just don't, can't swim at all. The second thing is we're deterred from swimming because it does due to our skin Absolutely. and our hair. Absolutely. Women, it's the hair For thing. For sure. So when I hear these stories of people kind of looking past that and actually taking it up, I'm like, oh, that's, that's interesting. I always want to know like why, why that sport. Outside of church, it's basketball in right. the black community. Just my dad's personality was if people aren't doing it, why not? And he would just naturally explore and see if he's interested. And then if he was interested, you know, he'd keep it up. He got really interested in pottery. Again, he's an artist. So that was a medium that he was using. Our basement was filled with pottery wheels and different apparatus for creating pottery. And I mean, it was just like he worked hard and played hard. So he had these interests. So you, did you naturally gravitate to tennis or is it, he said, you're going to do this? It was a little bit of both. He said, you're going to learn. I wanted to learn just because he'd take me with him when he went to practice. Mm-hmm. So he'd take me with him when he practiced serves. He'd take me with if he was playing a game against one of his friends. He'd take me with if he was just going to hit the ball on the wall. And then asked every time, hey, do you want to try it? And sometimes they'd say yes, sometimes I'd say no. And then once I could hit the ball over the net, my whole thing was like, I want to beat my dad. That was, <laughs> it was like my goal, <laughs> which, you know, probably says, you know, if you're psychoanalyzing me, be careful. That was the driver. Like, oh, I can, I, I can get better. And oh my gosh, I'm getting better pretty quickly. And my dad then said, okay, I've taught you all I can teach you. Now we're going to get you into real lessons. So the only thing he'd say and my mom would say was, as long as you finish this session, then you can say if you want to keep doing it or not. And so it would literally be like eight weeks at a time that I'd choose if I wanted to keep going. And I just kept going for years and then started playing tournaments. And I never thought I'd go so far to play in college and, and things like that. But it just so happened that I did well enough. I played at Lane. I played in 
these tournaments that were through the USTA and then played in college. Now, as you work your way through USTA, mm-hmm. did you see anybody that looked like you? No. no. No? Nobody at all? So we would have to play around like the Midwest. If I was playing in the city of Chicago, there was more of a chance that I'd meet players that were, again, brown. There were some black players, mostly from like Southside. Hyde Park Athletic Club was yep. a big tennis mecca. They're actually doing some. They're either building or expanding. There's a young African-American. She's fairly high rank from Chicago. She's working with the mayor and the governor. To- There's some investment happening there. But yeah, I... I would say non-white and then 80% white. Did that ever come out in any way on the circuit? It was not comfortable all the time. So, you know, there would be some times where I'd have tournaments in Wisconsin and Mm -hmm. there was no diversity. And so I'm one of those people that kind of like take inventory whenever (laughs) I walk into a room. Like, and again, it's more about, is there anyone else being represented here besides a white person and you know i'll take asian okay yay latino all right (laughs) you know black whoa so here we are okay you know i'm feeling more comfortable and i just do that naturally and i've always done that and it's more about i just i don't want to be the only non-white person here Mm. because then you know i used to get asked and i don't get that question much as much anymore but what are you it wouldn't be, well, sometimes non-white people would ask, but mostly white people. And I would always feel like, are you trying to put me in a box? You know, right, right. Uh, what are you, why are uh, you asking that? Why is it important to you? Yeah. You know, I'd always have a smart ass response of I'm a human, human being. And I dare them basically to ask me a follow-up question, <laughs> you um, know? Not white, but I would totally ask a follow-up. I'm just, I'm that type of dude. I'm like, oh, they don't want me to ask. <laughs> Yeah. Like if you couldn't ask me in an appropriate way, yes, so like there's there's an appropriate way. Yeah. So like, what are you is not the question, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to ask me what my ethnic background is, that's yeah. more appropriate. Or here's ways not to ask me. Yeah. Don't ask to touch my skin. Don't ask right. to touch my hair. Right. Don't say what are you. Yeah. Insinuate that I'm it. Yes. It, yes. Yeah. Don't do that. I would have those experiences in tennis and. School, kind of anywhere. It was more the norm than not back then. I think it's probably because I'm around adults, a work environment that people don't ask these questions anymore. I I would think that the current environment would teach us that crazy stuff is still capable of happening. for sure. My family's African-American. We're black. But I do the same thing. I survey the room. It's just a natural thing to do. I surveyed a room, one, to see if I'm the only whether it be I'm the only black person, the only black male, or I also survey the room to see if everybody looks like me. Because if there's a room of only this versus there might be one person, people carry themselves differently. I'll give you an that example. Is so true. If I walk into a room, which I've done, mm-hmm. and it's all women, they speak differently around me than if I wasn't in that room. Yeah. They talk differently. I would agree. So I spend a lot of time on the bench at home. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I go to the gym and I'll go to classes and it's it's all women in the class and I'm just yeah. going to class. And I know that they're acting different. Like if you walk into a white person, walks into a room with all black people, just letting everybody know, 
they're going to talk about things differently yeah. than if you weren't in the room. Yeah. The and filter becomes yeah. much more tight. I just take notice of that so I know what I'm getting myself into when I walk into a room. And sometimes that room can trick you because you can go in thinking like, oh, I got allies. Or you can go in thinking I got enemies. Or you can go in thinking, oh, this is going to go this way. Right. And then it turns out it doesn't go down like that. A lot of that is stemmed from prejudice. Absolutely. And experiences. Yep. Right. And prejudice doesn't necessarily mean I'm prejudiced against this or that person. It's just... I have these experiences that I've had in the past. and Everyone has them. So it's interesting to say that you just, you, you take inventory. Every time. I think my wife sometimes, she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just taking it in for yeah. it. Give me a second. Yeah. Scanning. Because <laughs> sometimes you just get in situations and you're just like, I, I, I got to get out of the situation. There needs to be an app for that. No, I mean, I have, I have been in that room where either some women didn't know I was there or got real comfortable. And I find that a lot that because I was raised by seven or eight women, I can like somehow six foot one, 240 pound black dude, I can just ease into a room with women and they get comfortable and, mm-hmm. and then they, they go into like the, and it's not wrong. It's just like these men and I'm like, hi, I'm, I'm right here. So given what you just said, I probably am not comfortable 100% Bro, you just made me think. I'm not comfortable <laughs> anywhere. Thanks. Thanks for triggering me. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I'm now balled up in a corner. <laughs> so, you know, and that's why I have tried to create bonds outside of just the demographics. It's never going to be where I'm going to be around people that are just like me. Well, it's hard to find someone that is mixed race whose dad was an artist, whose mom was a scientist, whose parents owned a business together, who grew up on the north side in Wrigleyville before it was Wrigleyville. Right. So, I mean, so yeah. I, I'm making a point, right? Yeah. It's just like we, for different reasons, I never felt comfortable around anybody either. Some of my past experiences. I'll say this. I grew up in Oak Park. There was a lot of interracial, mixed race mm-hmm. couples. And what you experience, what you're describing now or what you're realizing now a lot of those kids I went to high school with experienced it while they were in high school. It really threw them off. And I always remember that. And obviously I'm in a multicultural family now. And I always think back, like, how can I prepare my children for potentially that experience? Yeah. It's not turning one or the other off, right? One history off or one background, but it's at the same time, it's not also like, saying that you're only this. We're going to live by the one drop rule. Like, no. Yeah. We're parents, so we know that there's no manual or no book. It's a very difficult discussion as a parent. Like, this isn't just me messing up my life, right? Right. Yeah, I don't belong. And then I meet someone that I feel like I belong, and then they're different than me. Right. (laughs) And now we, our kids won't belong. Right, right. yeah. This is like a distress laugh. It's like, shit. (laughs) You also, as you grew up in a very diverse family, you've also created a diverse family. So has that experience been different from what you remember growing up? Yes. My husband is Caucasian. And I don't even know, you know, like. You didn't know he was white? No. Should I say white? (laughs) Should I say black? Should I say African American? I don't even, nothing is like just rolls off the tongue because I don't talk about people in that way 
you know, all mm. the time, every day. And I'm, I not, do. I'm not consistent with it. So sometimes they say white, sometimes they say Caucasian, sometimes they say African American, sometimes they say black. There's no reason. For this podcast, we're going to stick to white. Okay, white and black. Or whatever you feel comfortable with. Okay. Caucasian just seems long. I know. Yeah. So does African American. Black, yeah. Okay. Yeah, white. <laughs> so, so let's go one it's syllable. Late, I'm tired. <laughs> like, keep it simple. All right, we're keeping it simple. So, so yes, I married a man who's white. His family is from the South Side, as you've said. I'm from the North Side. South His, Side Irish? No, you know he has Irish in his background, but yeah. he's got a lot of other you okay. know, European heritage. His sister married a mixed guy, half Filipino, half white. His other sister married a mixed guy, half white, half black. So our people can't see, but I have, I have. I have one eye squinted and the other eye going like, "Yeah, what's going on here? So the cousins look like a Benetton ad, you know, okay. <laughs> like yeah. we're just, you know, this all this whole uh, swath. And I only bring that up because the immediate family of my husband, they're definitely more liberal. One lives in Evanston, another lives in uh, another Western suburb. And I think we're all kind of aware of race, that we're in a multicultural family. We don't shy away from those topics when it comes up among the siblings. But when we talk with the parents and maybe more extended family, we're a little bit more guarded and just don't have that same level of openness. Through this election, found out that there's some Trump supporters out there and things well, like that. And it was a surprise. They are among us. They are among us. It's a little interesting that way. Right. It's funny the way you describe it. You're like, it's like a family tree. Like this level, we're cool. We can talk about it. Like, you go up a couple of leaves, like, no, nah, we're just going to keep it to Monopoly. Yeah. And did the Bears win? Right, exactly. <laughs> We're gonna was that cake good? Yeah, we won't even say if it's a chocolate. We won't say that chocolate. <laughs> right, that cake exactly. <laughs> good or not? Exactly. Know? Yeah. Oh, wow. So we got to keep it real superficial. All I'll say to that is I've been there and I'm doing that. We were talking about this off air. It's like there's a time to be like, no, yeah, fuck that. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is out of line. But then there's also a time to be like. I ain't got time for this. You know what? All I'm trying to do is go take a shower, trying to go do something. This isn't educate ignorant person right now time. Yeah. (laughs) Or like teach you some sensitivities about all types of stuff. Right. It could be race. It could be female issues. Whatever. So like we don't even give it a chance. It's hard not to, right? Because we, you were raised a certain way that you don't shy away from those conversations. Mm -hmm. You talk about, like you said, you watch your parents, read the paper. Yeah. They had dialogue. It's, ingrained in your memory absolutely and you're supposed to talk about these things amongst like-minded and non-like-minded people just to have dialogue yeah but we've gotten to the point where we can't even get you know a different perspective without it becoming heated my favorite is accused of become heated why are you so angry right well exactly i'm not really angry i'm talking in in the same tone i may be using my hands more but i'm right you sound so passionate. Yeah, I am passionate. What's yeah. wrong? You know, what's wrong with that? Well, and don't mistake me disagreeing with you with anger. Just because I'm bringing something up that you don't like doesn't mean that makes me angry. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like a record scratch. You know, it's just like, like, oh, you're talking about something that I just can't handle at this point. Like we were talking off air, you know, 
that wasn't me. I, I was able to, I don't know about gracefully, but definitely navigate um, these discussions with more ease. I just feel like there's this huge hill mm-hmm. to climb. We all, whatever we are, white, black, Latina, Latino, whatever, um, Asian, we, we've come to this place that we've allowed one another to put each other in boxes yeah. and to isolate and to silo. And it's like, if you disagree with someone, you have to be in disagreement with them about everything, your whole being. And you can't be caught agreeing with them on anything or or you, you can't represent us. Now, I, I think that some things are deal breakers, so to speak. Yeah. Like, that is dumb. I can't agree with you on that. No, I don't think that there are any good KKK members or I, both I, sides. Right. <laughs> I, I, I have to respect them because I'm an American. Yeah. And I have to respect that they have their First Amendment rights. Now, would I tweak that to not include things like hate messaging? Right. Maybe I would, but that's not the law. But I can't sit here on a one on one level and say that white nationalists, to me, there are certain deal breakers. I can't get past that. Yeah. Of course. You were a child in this kind of multicultural family, and now you're a parent. So as a child, my parents were intentional in making sure that I spent time with both sides of the family. And unfortunately, when I was growing up, my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family didn't have functions together. And it wasn't because we were trying to keep things separate or they were trying to keep things separate. It was just... My dad had seven brothers and sisters. I mean, the family functions were rather large. Now I'm trying to be as intentional with my children who are four and six, soon to be six, and giving them those experiences, those cultural experiences. I mean, it's just as much having them be part of my family. So spending time with my brothers, having them spend time with my aunts and uncles on both sides as it is with my husband's family but we moved to the suburbs so it's just as important for them to come to the city and have urban quote-unquote experiences and do the things that I used to do growing up here going to the museums going to the lake the festivals things that I enjoyed growing up I want to make sure that they have those experiences too but you didn't just move to a suburb. You moved to a suburb that's pretty homogenous. Yeah. Right? Less homogenous than I realized. It wouldn't be high on the diverse suburbs. Not by race alone. Yes. So that's different than how you grew up in Chicago. Correct. So the north side, when I was growing up, there was diversity. But I didn't see a whole lot of black people walking around no. on the north side. And so I'd have to go to the west side where my dad's from, just east of Oak Park. That's awesome. The experiences that I had being with my dad's family was very different than Mm -hmm. being on the north side. And so the challenge I'm just pushing back on is I didn't feel like I was in a really diverse setting. I felt like I was in a pretty whitewashed setting on the north side of Chicago. I also felt like there were more middle class people around me. It wasn't really very varied from a socioeconomic standpoint. I mean, sure, there were kids that had more than me. Sure, there there were kids that had less, but it wasn't. I didn't see poverty. I was pretty sheltered to that. The north side, I feel like it's not the suburbs, but it's sheltered. 
I don't disagree with you. It, to a certain extent, it still is. Even more so, I would argue. I think when you say you live in a city, it somehow encapsulates like, oh, everything, even though people don't go to the west side or, Correct. The south, or the south side. But the one thing I will say, though, is if you go to a museum mm-hmm. in Chicago, you're probably going to be in diverse environment. Absolutely. If you go to, you go to a Bulls game, yep. right? If like you're if, on public transportation. Right. But if you go to a event or a theater at your local high school mm-hmm. or a theater company, mm-hmm. you may not get the same diversity that you would get in the city. Correct. So your day-to-day life on the north side and in the burbs may be similar in some way, but as you go out to get cultural experiences, you're going to get that diversity. Absolutely. Because um, I struggle with that with my daughters living up here and living anywhere. You know, Chicago I, is segregated. Still yeah, is. I, I don't know if it's the segregated diversity or diverse segregation. I always tell folks, go to the lake, go up to North Avenue and drive west. Yeah. And you will see the neighborhoods may or may not look the same, but the people in those neighborhoods will change Very drastically different. as you go west. I think it's one of those things that's a pro and a con mm-hmm. about our city. If I wanted to get a Ukrainian experience, right? I could probably find that neighborhood. If I wanted to go get a great Ethiopian meal, authentic, I think I could find that too. What we find though is that on a day-to-day basis, those people chosen to live together. I've read a couple articles on like migration patterns. If you're moving from Estonia or Lithuania or Nigeria or the south part of the United States, do you want to live amongst people that look like you and right. speak your language and have your experiences? Right. Or do you want to like branch out and do something different? Most people are going to move where there are people like them. But when you have that generation after generation and you mix that with prejudice and you mix that, I mean, I grew up on the West Side being told don't cross a street because that was a Latino gang or don't go to Bridgeport because there's a whole bunch of racist white people. And that was not only something that was told to you, you had anecdotal experiences sure. from that. Like, oh, I got treated this way or I know someone that got beat up. Growing up, you know that's not, not all true. I think from when we grew up in the city, it's gotten a little bit better, but it's still there. If I go to certain parts of Pilsen, it's like, who are you? Even in the black community, mm-hmm. the militant girl I dated, she was from, her family Her family was from Inglewood, but she lived in the south suburbs. My family was from the west side. I was different. It was like, oh, you're just a west side dude. You're not even cultured. So it was a whole bunch of things. Either you weren't cultured, you're not hard enough, or something, but... There are differences like that in the city. And I think you find those anywhere, any city you go to. But the one thing I will say that's different from when I was growing up, I feel like if I go to a restaurant or if I go somewhere, for the most part, I feel welcome. When I was younger, I used to feel it like you're not welcome here. But now I feel like I go to Logan Square, I'll go somewhere in Inglewood, I'll go to the far north side, I'll go anywhere and I feel welcome. That decision you made to move to the suburbs, was that tough? Extremely difficult. So part of my identity was being from the city. I enjoyed my experience. I enjoyed going to public school. I enjoyed being able to ride public transportation. I enjoyed the culture. I enjoyed just being able to be around a lot of like-minded people. And I wanted my children to have that experience. But what was equally important was the education and my choice at the time and we just moved a year ago 
was I can do private school, but we'll have to make some sacrifices in the family in order to do that, or go out to the suburbs and have a public education. We kind of just did the math on private school times two and suburb taxes and said, okay, well, we'll go out here. And, you know, we toured schools. We went to Evanston, Oak Park, several other suburbs and interviewed teachers, walked classrooms. I asked if I could just watch the lunchroom because I thought that tells me way more than anything I'm going to see in the classroom. I was looking at the diversity because you can see the diversity score on the websites, Mm -hmm. but it's diversity plus how the kids interact with each other. I also wanted to see what were the teachers reflective of the student population. When I went and visited this one school where we're living now, I actually saw diversity in the classroom. And again, my gauge for diversity is more non-white than just either black or white. And it's probably because of my appearance, my daughter's appearance. We're seen more as non-white because people can't put us in the box right away. They don't know what we are. And so I want my daughter to be able to see other children in her classroom that look like her. Even if they're not the same background, I just don't want her to feel like I've got to have blonde hair and blue eyes in order to be pretty. I want to learn from my experience, but I don't want to dump. I don't want to take all the things that I went through and the the experiences that I had and the thoughts that I had and project that on her. I have to be very careful. My goal was to create a, a level playing field for my kids. When I went to the school that we're in, It happens to be a dual language school. And so just by that nature, it's half native Spanish speakers and half native English speakers. That created its own level of diversity. Within that, there's a lot of socioeconomic diversity, which I think is extremely important, just that children can see we can get along with everybody. You don't have to be of a certain echelon. There was diversity within the faculty and staff. Again, I just want there to be that reflection. But you also, if I remember correctly, you kind of got caught up in that private public dynamic in Chicago that people don't talk about. It's like you have to get in at a certain point. Oh my gosh. <laughs> or yeah. you don't get in. Right? Absolutely. So <laughs> I slept, I guess, not realizing that you had to get in at three years old versus four. Right. And so I came to the party late and my four-year-old got waitlisted and I was like, oh my gosh. We're talking about four-year-olds getting waitlisted at institutions of learning that cost more than it costs for us to go to undergrad. Correct. Yes. Let that to sink in yes. for people. So you literally have to pay someone to babysit your kid for the first two years before they can get to kindergarten just so they can get a spot to go to a place that goes to K through eight. Exactly. I want that to sink in because if you wait until they're four, there are no spots available unless a family leaves. Typically, if it's a great school, they don't. No, but so that was definitely in the matrix for the decision, you know, was I going to wait and see and then possibly miss a chance for my daughter to get in through this neighborhood dual language program. I wasn't okay with just kind of rolling the dice. I'm like, I'm going to control my own destiny. That was an eye-opening experience. 
being a diverse family, how has like the recent events, election, president affected you and your family? It's been difficult for me just realizing who is in the highest office of government. I'm disappointed in our country. I'm embarrassed by this man. I want to sing from the hilltops that this is not all Americans. This is one individual. But I'm more disappointed by the fact that from a bipartisan standpoint, we're not all coming together to say no. We're not going to have it. This is not acceptable. And calling him on the carpet. So I'm hoping that eventually will come. I have to stay optimistic. It's hard for me to even look at my in the news feeds and to stay on top of it and just emotionally okay. It's pretty painful, you know, the comments that he made around Charlottesville and the things that he's done before that. But my husband, um, you know, he's much more willing and much more interested in talking about this. I think everybody kind of handles things in their own way. And so me being an introvert, I'm definitely more reflective internally. I don't like to think out loud a lot. I like to kind of form my opinion. And then when I'm ready to share it, I'll share it. But as close to fully baked as possible, you know, but my husband likes to think out loud and have ideas go back and forth and more kind of like a brainstorming. And you know, there's nothing I wanted to brainstorm about Trump. Like, that's it. You know, I, I don't want to hypothesize what he could have been thinking. No, nope. he's 70 years old. He's had a full life. He should have learned by now, <laughs> you know. He met my expectations of the man I thought he was. Absolutely. Going into office. So I wasn't surprised. It'd be like me expecting someone that had called me the N-word six months ago to, like, change up. Similar to you, what really troubled me is that People tried to find reasons, in their mind, they thought they were good, to support a self-proclaimed rapist, sexual assaulter, a racist. Xenophobe. A person who had some really disparaging comments towards people with disabilities. What was troubling for me is that people found reasons to rally behind him for selfish, personal reasons. Like Paul Ryan said... This is the best chance to get my agenda through. So my question to Paul Ryan was, you're okay with that person being a racist, a misogynist, a rapist? Exactly. I didn't know it was that many people out there secretly harboring these feelings. Yeah. And I didn't know that there were this amount of air quotes, well-meaning white people that were willing to stay silent. Not only just in office, like friends of mine. There are people that have, like, taken action. Sure. But I was actually surprised by the people who were put into that, like, liberal progressive box that did nothing. Yeah. And that continued to do nothing. We had that discussion about walking into the room and trying to figure out who's who. Right. I felt like I walked into the room and I thought I knew people. And it turned out I didn't know them. Exactly. And we talked about that movie, Get Out. That really illustrates you know you think that you're walking into a liberal household you think that you're around progressives but in fact there's a whole other thing going on behind the scenes it kind of goes back to that you know everybody's an asshole until they prove otherwise bringing it back to dad bringing it back to dad (laughs) because honestly it doesn't matter if you're democrat republican 
right. whatever, to be cliche, actions speak louder than words. And inaction is definite. Deeper Dish is hosted by Farah. Intro, mixing, editing is done by Alyssa Moxley. Produced by me, Farah. Our outro was performed by From Beyond These Walls, and the song is City of Dystopia. If you want to contact us directly, feel free to contact us at deeperdishshy at gmail.com. Or on Twitter, our handle is at deeperdishshy. Our website is www.deeperdishshy.com. 